0: Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut. I'm an ASC cinematographer, and I wanted to kind of talk to you about something. Getting started in this industry is almost impossible. And my wife Lydia and I, 14 years ago, created a resource called Filmmakers Academy to make it possible. We saw a lot of gatekeeping in this industry and not a lot of sharing knowledge. So we wanted to pull back the curtain Give you confidence, teach you all the necessary skills to be an amazing, successful filmmaker, and package it all on this online resource that you have at your fingertips, on set, on your phone, on your laptop, whatever it is. So, we're going to give you $50. So, if you go into the show notes, click the link, and hit the promo code FAPOD50, you're going to get $50 on your first year of an All Access membership. And I cannot wait for you to join our immense and immersive community at Filmmakers Academy, where we network, we share knowledge, we just bond as this huge filmmaking uh, resource to ignite your creativity and push you beyond your boundaries. I cannot wait to see you in the Academy, and let's get to the podcast. Welcome to Shane's Inner Circle Podcast with your hosts, Shane and Lydia. Hello, Inner Circle members, and welcome to March 2016's podcast. We're going to be going into cinematography and lighting on this one. And uh, I'm very excited about this podcast because uh, we had have had some really great, uh, wonderful questions from all of our members. And uh, hey... Without further ado, let's get to it. All right, hi Shane. I love the inner circle and what you do. It's so unique and powerful. I have a BS in film, but I've easily doubled my knowledge as a shooter over what I've learned in film school. I'm very self-critical and my question surrounds what I feel is my weakest skill as a shooter, my angles. Not so much lens selection, but camera placement in relation to my subject. It was first brought to my attention by a director under whom I've worked on short film who micromanaged me so badly that he often got out tape measures and quibbled over mere inches in distance to subject and up or down angles on them. He even went so far as to tell me I use porno angles whatever that means. But to an extent, through though he handled it poorly, I know he's right. Even when I get the lens selection right and the light is amazing, sometimes I see I've missed the mark in the viewfinder and cringe, but decide to fiddle with it anyway, because I can't spend an hour just fiddling with camera placement. I've even heard several filmmakers say something to the tune of there's only one correct spot for the camera to be. Could you speak a bit about the topic of the correct placement and help me find it, even if it's just a few basic tips? Thank you so much, Ben. All right, Ben. Well, first off, uh, Thank you so much for the kind words on the inner circle and uh, all that you're getting out of it. That is exactly what Lydia and I and our whole team at Hurlbut Visuals had hoped would happen with as many thousands of people that we can, uh, influence and virtual mentor. Um, again, we have to continue to keep, get the word out, uh, to keep this, um, wonderful community going and thriving uh it takes a lot of money to keep this whole uh operation cracking and uh it's it's just wonderful to hear all of you um with all of your support and wonderful feedback from this community so i want to thank you for that and thank you for all of our members i love you all All right. So let's get down to this porno angle. Not, I love that. Uh, No. Uh, Always trying to, to, you're happy with the lighting and you're happy with your lens choice, but the director or what you feel you're missing the mark on your lens placement. Well, I have to say, I've seen many books about camera placement and and how to place a camera and, and uh, the idiosyncrasies and the theoretical sense of it all. I think more than anything, what you need to do is just start to take a lot of pictures. Um, and that's what I do. Even to this day, I'm constantly trying to challenge myself from a composition standpoint, I would go out and if you don't have a still camera, get a still camera. If you, uh, I would get one that has a super 35 millimeter sensor. So like the 7D is a great one or the 7D Mark II uh, or the A7S if you can still frame in 35 millimeter. I'm not sure, I can't remember about that camera, but whatever it is, You want to be framing with a super 35 millimeter uh, frame size. And you'll start to understand as you compose, you'll start to see what lens it is. So you'll start to really educate yourself in that range. Um, And you'll also just start to, I mean, I just like to, to really compose nicely you know a, a very classic composition and then i will uh then i'll mix it up a little bit and try to go kind of a little more avant-garde and a little more risky with the framings so let's get down to camera placement because that was the heart of your question here mere inches the fact that your director uh brought out tape measures and did all this stuff is pretty Um, I mean, that's pretty extreme. Uh, I've never had anything like that happen to me, even when I was starting out. So that's a very unique situation in in its own right. But I will address the fact that inches matter a lot in regards to what you're trying to convey to the audience. What is your camera emotion uh, and I talk about this a lot, and I'll continue to talk about it, because what our job as cinematographers is to assist in the emotional connection between the character and the audience. I think Roger Deakin said it the best. He said, if you are looking at my lighting, then I have failed. And I treat lighting the same exact way. Roger Deakins is a very good friend and a wonderful peer and a mentor to me. I look at his work and I just in awe, inspiring. And this is tried and true. You are there to assist with a camera motion, to be able to take that character's emotion and connect to the audience even higher, as well as a lighting emotion. So let's talk about the camera motion because that's what we're addressing to Ben right now. If, let's say, you like to use wide angle lenses like uh, Amelie, let's say. So, um, and you want to get that effect of pushed in very close with wide angle lenses. The height of where your lens is is going to be very, very specific because depending on the person's face, Uh, You are going to be using a specific lens that doesn't, with those wide-angle lenses, you can distort, but the distortion can look really good on a specific face. Like Amelie, they did all these tests. I was reading the the behind-the-scenes in An American Cinematographer, and they did tons of tests on the lead actress to find the exact height that looked good, the exact Focal length that looked the best on Amelie's face. So these are definitely things that are uh, very important when you're dealing with inches. The other thing in dealing with inches in regards to height is whether you want to give your character power, whether you want to belittle them, whether you want them centered and, you know, driving whether you want them off left or off hard right to be able to, uh, say an uneasiness or, uh, and, and I'm not talking like classic frames of doing an over and leaving the space as he talks or he or she talks across camera. That's normal, but extremes in regards to really putting the person on the right or the left side of the frame or short siding them. So you're pushing the negative space. Uh, off behind them. And uh, the frame is literally right at their face. So these are compositions that you want to kind of play with, and you want to see what type of camera emotion and what is that character's emotion that they are going through. And then you use this kind of style to be able to um, be able to, you know, kind of uh, bring it Bring their performance even higher, because now you're assisting in this camera emotion to their emotion. Now, I I read uh, I think Meet Joe Black, uh, the director and Chivo, uh, who is uh, you know who's been winning Oscars left and right for Birdman and Gravity, and it looks like he's going to be getting Revenant. Um, he. At one time I read in this uh, description is that it took them all day to find the wide shot. So the whole company came in and they walked around and they finally found the wide shot towards the end of the day and they basically wrapped. I have never had that type of time ever in my career. And uh, so it's not a good rule of thumb to fiddle around trying to find your wide shot for a whole day. Uh, it's Chivo, okay, he can do that. But for me, we have to be very efficient on the budgets that are crushing us down and and uh, asking our crew and our gear and everything that we're deploying to be at its utmost and, and incredibly focused. And so with that, I, I would say, uh, you know, find that camera placement. And the placement is really based on blocking. I mean, uh, that's how I place my cameras. Uh, I watch the actors. Um We block a scene. So, we literally, I, we walk in and the actors run through it. And maybe they read it first. And then after they read it, the, the director would give uh, a little bit of, uh, suggestions here and there. And then they said, okay, let's see it move. So let's block this thing. And I'm basically sitting in the room, uh, or the exterior or the, you know, wherever we are, the environment. And I'm just watching the actors move with, within it. And out of that you start to see, okay, we're going, you know, they're going to go over here and they're going to obviously have a little confrontation there. So we're going to want to be on the, the side uh, of the camera. So I have the downside, you know, the lighting downside to camera. So that's going to force me over to the left side. Uh, And then I got my light. Okay. I'm looking at it. And, you know, you're starting to look at the light as well. And you're listening to the emotion of their performance. And, you know, as you get more experience, you're going to get very good at this. It just it takes a little bit, and um, you know, I, I just l- watch them block, and then out of that, it's all driven on what I see. I don't look at a book that talks about triangulating this and and moving that, and and uh, this this is the approach to find your uh, wide shot and framing all that you know, theoretical bullshit. Sometimes, uh, I, I just, I'm uh, immersing myself in the performance and what they're telling me to do and on their movement that is instructing me what the camera should do, if it should move, it sh- if it should slide. And a rule of thumb that I always try to do is the master tries to work for the whole scene. And, And if you go down that thought process, you become very meticulous on trying to make that work. Uh, I've worked with directors that don't like that idea at all, and then I've worked with others that love the idea because what it does is it gets the actors warmed up and in the pocket. And it's best to do this in a wide shot where you're kind of getting them where you want them, and then we can start to go in for close-ups and medium shots and everything. So um, I try to let that do some kind of you know if the camera can be a lock off and they can move within it. Their blocking works really well, and they kind of come up to camera and then move away from it. I mean, Woody Allen is so good on blocking these kind of things, and Kurosawa uh, is incredible in blocking his actors all within one single frame. So, but I'm that's the way I'm looking at it. I'm like, okay, how can I tell the story in a wide shot with an, and and if I have to move the camera or it's able to be a lock off or whatever it might be, how can I move it? How can I angle it in a way uh, that is going to tell the story with just one shot? And uh, I talk about this in my uh, illumination experience workshop as what I call a key frame. When I read a script, each scene has a key frame. Uh, and that key frame is the frame that is the basis off of that whole emotion within the story, the one that's going to tell the story the best. So if you had one shot to tell the story, what would your key frame be? And out of that, then you backward engineer the, uh, you know, the, the whole scene, That's one way I go about it sometimes. Um, And that's with a good shot list and working with the director and setting up, um, you know, when you see the blocking and you're like, oh, okay, this is going to be really good. Like, okay, let's take an example. Um, I did this shot uh, that is in Into the Badlands, and it was in episode six. And what it was, was our uh, MK, who was this very young child, but he's very powerful, and Quinn, who is the most powerful Baron, and they're sitting in a room and they're having a conversation. And this conversation, what's going on with the conversation Is very uh, intense because. Quinn is kind of luring him. He's the way he delivered it and the, because on the page, it didn't read like this. But once he got in the room and started to read the dialogue and started to talk, he was like a slithering snake. And he was like, you know, like a boa constrictor. And he was winding himself with words and everything around in MK's head and getting him to do exactly what he wanted him to do. Well, in listening to that performance, I'm like, "All right, we are going to snake along the ground exactly like you know uh, Quinn is slithering, snake coiling around MK." So we literally start on the ground, really low, and we're kind of pushing into the scene as they start to, you know, are standing at first, and then they counter, and he lure, lures them into his little chair right next to him, and he kind of sits there and just winds. His beautiful snake like body around him, you know, not physically, but mentally. And so after the rehearsal and seeing what they did, I saw this shot where uh, the over the shoulder, uh, Quinn put his hand up and rest his arm, his hand on his head, uh, like on the armchair, and it coiled around MK's head. Well, that became the keyframe right then and there. If I had to be on one shot, I could easily just hear his amazing words and then watch him wrap his arm around his head and we would have had the, the scene. Now, of course, this is not what we're going to do, but that is the power of a keyframe and finding that composition and that angle that does something like that in every scene is incredibly important to think about. So think about your keyframe. Now, I know I'm jumping around a little bit here, but let's just go back to Ben's question in regards to not... Understanding where to place the camera and worried about uh, height or or uh, too close, too far away. I mean, any type of angle. If you're on a woman, I if I'm going to do a portrait, I love a 75 or a hundred. Um, I don't shove a 50 up in their face. I don't uh, shove a 35 or or a 24. Nothing like that. Uh, for a close-up, it's going to be a 75 or 100. Or in still world, because we're talking a lot of that time uh, with these lenses that for some reason don't follow the cinematic realm, uh, is an 85 uh, for a close-up or a 135 Um So, you know, these, uh, I like the 85, 75, because I don't feel so removed, uh, from the person, uh, when you do longer lenses, like 135, you feel distant from the character. So if I was going to go into a nice over the shoulder and I'd say, maybe I'm doing it on a 50 or, or a 32, then I jump into a 75 for the close-up. If I'm doing it on a 50, then I jump into a hundred. So... But, um, you know, these type of decisions that you make, um, you know, based on your wide shot, watching the blocking, watching where you can place the camera so it works in one shot. And a lot of times that means the camera's got to move. So you don't cross the line and stuff. And and I'll literally, you know, put it on Dolly or a dance floor or track or on a movie, whatever it is, I'll move and ebb and flow with the actors to be able to get that wide shot. And then you systematically just start taking it apart uh, from, um, you know, lensing in regards to, you know, what, again, what is the emotion of your characters? Uh, do we want to stay away from them or or do we want to be be very intimate with them if it's intimate then you want to be using wider lenses pushed in a little closer so it feels like we're right there if it wants to be very classic and uh you know classic cinema then it's the the 75 or the 100 mil for that close up um and a 50 probably for the over the shoulder but if you want to be a little more intimate with them i would maybe start with a 29 and then go a 50 you see so the it all really depends on what that character's emotion and what type of of immersion you want on the performance and how close you want to be or how backed off you want to be or you know it's 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 truly something that uh you know, I most of the time six, seven feet on a 75 mil is going to be a perfect uh close-up. Um, oh, let's talk about close-up framing because this is something that is something that uh I always argue several times with all of my operators because I love the way I frame and I love for my operators to continue to frame like the way I like to compose. So uh if I'm going in on what we call a choker, let's say, and a choker is where the frame literally chokes the guy's neck, that frame is going to be just above his eyebrow and just below his neck. So that, that is my choker. Now, if I move out to a normal close-up, I'm gonna call that a collarbone. Uh, so, I always love to frame the collarbone of the individual, whether it's male or female and and uh most of their head and then you know a medium shot uh and, and then it depends on what they uh, what they what they want to convey right. The, when you look at the widow, let's say, cause I've just finished Badlands and we're going to be doing a lot of onsets. So all this will relate and you can go back and look at it as well. When she's in that bar at Versailles, uh, she's got two very powerful things that are right under her collarbone and that is her breasts. Okay. And this is sex appeal. This is something that, uh, you know, for all the women, I'm not trying to be, um, uh, sexist or anything, but this is what you have to, uh, this is, uh, her power. She's coming in. She's trying to woo this, uh, individual with any way that she can to convince him to go on her side. Now, whether that is with force whether it is with the sexiest dress on the planet, whatever that is, uh, she is pulling out all stops to be able to do it. So in that regards, we would want to see that in the frame because that is very much about the widow's power. When uh, a a guy is uh, in a power position, and I did this a ton on Quinn you know, especially when you look to the scenes where he goes, you want to kill him, my name? I mean, where is the camera? The camera isn't high above him looking down, belittling him. It is like racked underneath him looking up and it's, he's so heroic and so powerful. And you're like, you just fall in love with this guy, right? So, These are the kind of camera angles that, and camera placement. Uh, obviously, with a low angle, you're going to look at his face. Uh, you're going to look on how you know you don't want to go too low, so you're shooting right up at his nose, but you want to come out enough to be able to give him power. These are all the things that uh, you know you're going to be looking at. When I shoot women, a lot of times, uh, like when the widow, I would go low because I always wanted to empower her. But if we wanted to kind kind of, um, make somebody a little, very beautiful and, uh, fragile at the same time. I'll take the camera and I'll put it right at eye level, and then I'll raise it up about two to three inches and just shoot slightly down on, on them. Um, but these are tricks of the trade that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to demystify you all. Uh, but again, it's so much in the moment and so much in the performance that, I really don't even think about these things anymore because it's gotten so um second nature but I'm trying to think about my process and how I go through it so I can help Ben here with uh with this with these uh questions that he has and I think if you treat it like porno angle, I'm just trying to understand. I mean, obviously, then you're looking at a lot of low angles, you're looking at angles that uh, are looking really far up individuals. Um, Again, you If I'm going on a a low angle close up and I want to empower somebody, I'm probably on a 35 millimeter to make the guy feel, you know, a wide angle lens and, um, or even a 50 down low, uh, and uh, having them feel just really alive and powerful, not so extreme. If I want to belittle the person a lot of times when Uh, You get these kind of things where people are looking up to the individual for forgiveness. A lot of people always get into the same kind of coverage. So if somebody's down on their knees and they're looking up to the person, well, a lot of times they go uh, over the shoulder. So I'm looking uh, down low on this guy, and I'm looking up to the individual that he's asking for forgiveness and then people will uh, go around and go over him looking down on the individual. Well that kind of belittles him uh, even though he's asking for forgiveness. He's asking for forgiveness. So I'm always with the hip cup. You're cutting across the person's hip and getting the person looking up to the individual. And I think that really, again, delivers a wonderful uh, nature of asking for forgiveness. So we're not necessarily in his eyes, looking down on him over the person's shoulder. We're cutting his, across uh, his hip, uh, our foreground person, and then uh, going into him looking above camera and asking for forgiveness. All right. Well, I think I've done my best to try and answer that one, Ben. So thank you very much for that question. It's awesome. All right, here's our next one. Hey, Shane, I wonder if you can talk about documentary filmmaking and a good and portable camera and lighting setup for a doc. Thanks. J.J. Geller. All right, J.J. I have to say, if there was one documentary camera that I feel is the absolute best around, i would say it's either the c100 mark ii or the c300 mark ii you have uh you have one the mark ii c300 you got 4k internal if you want just straight 1080 and a smaller and a lower price point then you have the c100 mark ii both of them basically um have almost near the same sensor um the C100 Mark II has uh, about 12 stops of latitude. They're saying that the C300 Mark II has about 15 stops. I found that it was more like 13 and a half. Uh, but what I love about these cameras is they're so lightweight, they're so compact. Um, you can just run and gun with them so beautifully and they just deliver wonderful imagery. And they're not noisy. So where a black magic is a very small camera that gives you a lot of latitude and has a great raw, uh, you know, file. Um, when you go into situations that you will in documentaries where you don't have uh lighting and you got to kind of go with it, well, Christ, the C300 and the C100, you can crank that up to 4,000 ISO and the noise is going to be minimal. Where the black magic, you can't go above 1600 and you're going to get flat or, you know, fixed pattern noise. So, These are the things thinking about the GH4. Everyone totes this is an amazing documentary camera. Well, again, you can't go above 400 ISO. If you go above 400, then it just gets noisy, incredibly noisy. So you have to pick a camera that uh, is going to be able to work in extreme conditions. It also has internal NDs, so you can just blast them in so quickly And the one thing about the Canon that I just want to say, and I've said this a hundred times, and I just want you to hear it again, the Canon sensor is different than every other camera. And the reason why is when you light with a red Epic dragon or a weapon or a Scarlet or an Arri Alexa, you can light without the camera. With the Canon, you cannot. What you need to do is sit that camera down, fire it up, and even before you strike one light, you already set your exposure and you already set your color temp. Because the reason is the Canon sensor energizes light. Light that you would not see contrast that you would not necessarily see to the naked eye sometimes. It is all about turning that camera on and seeing what happens and then reacting to that. A lot of times it's just like, turning lights off and taking light away and you don't really have to add anything. I mean, I remember back on, you know, fathers and daughters, it was all about taking light away. I could light with a practical and so nicely. And it had all the mood and contrast and blacks and everything that I'd want. I couldn't do that with a dragon. You just can't. It's, it falls off too extreme. It gets way too noisy. And the blacks, it, just doesn't have, if you don't give that camera a lot of light, uh, it, it just falls apart. And where the Canon, it needs a lot of light, but you can use your ISO to be able to give it the light that it requires. And once you do, my God, the camera just ignites. So that would be my pick for the best documentary camera ever is one of those. Um, In regards to a lighting setup, that's going to be small and compact and, and uh, really, you know, the ability to give you as much freedom as possible. You know, I look to especially these new Kino flows that are coming out that are the panels They had the Celeb 200 and the Celeb 400. Well, they're coming out with a whole new line that's even more impressive than those and incredibly lightweight. And the ballast detaches from the head so it becomes as light as a four foot four bank or a four foot two bank. Uh, And you can rig it with ease and it has beautiful color and very, very bright. Um, The Cineo, Uh, HS series is incredible as well. Uh, They're very small, very compact, uh, and you can get tons and tons of light out of these things. You can bounce them. You can book light them. You can go direct. Uh, so these are really great interview style lights, uh, for you to be able to react to whatever color temperature is, uh, going on in the room. Whether you're in tungsten, whether you're in 4300, whether you're in 5500, uh, you're able to react with these, uh, LED and HS, uh, lights. Uh, for backlights, you know, I end up Having, you know, I build my own. I love these little battens that I build two foot, one foot, three foot, four foot with the little, um, you know, uh, R30, 45 watt and 85 watt globes in there. And I just, they're very lightweight and you just hang them anywhere, uh, to, to be able to backlight. Um, I, I like backlight that's very soft and kind of rappy and not so hard, uh, for interviews. So, whatever you're using, it would want to be somewhat of a line of light. So, again, uh, you could backlight with these Kinoflow panel lights. Uh, you could backlight with, uh, the matchsticks are a really cool thing from Cineo. I've started to use those for backlights because they're like, you can get the ones that are like 36 inches long and they're so lightweight and they go right up into the ceiling and then you can dial them in to whatever your dimmer you want. And it's a light, nice long uh light that can be controlled fairly simply. So, Uh, You know, I would stick in the LED vein uh, for this kind of stuff, and it packs a nice wallop for you being able to balance. If you have two Cineo HSs, uh, and you are in a day uh, interior, and you have to balance your interior and exterior light, those two things, lit or straight driving through diffusion will work out incredibly well. I know that Chimera has started to build uh, softboxes for the Cineos. Um, So that's something you can go with. uh, And these are more of a high dollar solution. And then uh, for a little lower dollar solution that I use, my God, I've done like four or five movies using these, is the Westcott Spider Lights. These things are insane. Uh, they take six bulbs, and you can get as bright a bulb if you want, or as minimal a bulb as you want. And you can put an octabank, which is a a very large circular. I think it's fifty or sixty inches in diameter, which folds up very easily and can pack away in a small bag. Uh, also, with that spider light, you can also go with a. Um, I think it's a 20 or 36 by 40, uh, 36 by 48 or 36 by 40 inch. A soft box on the spider light as well. All these clamp onto it and you can use just whatever bulbs you want in there. And it's a beautiful light and it takes very minimal power and it's a really nice soft source. And then you can buy louvers, uh, egg crates, whether it's 40 degree or you can invest in the chimera ones that are the hard egg crates of 60 degree, 90 degree. 30, 20, 10. And these egg crates are very uh keep you so if you're in tight quarters and you want beautiful, soft light, but you don't want it flying all over the place, you can use these egg crates and honeycombs to be able to do that. So I think a, a mix of depending on your budget, uh Chimera and Cineo and Kinoflow LED technology. Uh, with like matchsticks and HS with Cineo and then the panels with the, with the Kinoflows would be your high dollar solution. Uh, your lower dollar solution would be the Westcott Spiderlight. Um, and, uh, you know, it's very portable, very packs up in a very small box and you just keep your globes in a nice, uh, area so that they don't get broken and you can travel very simple and quick. And, uh, so Westcott would be your more of a low dollar solution with that. And then as a backlight, uh, Westcott has this really cool kit that i absolutely love it's a spider light kit that comes with two spider lights and then it comes with a 10 inch by 36 inch softbox, which is going to be a perfect backlight and it's light as heck the thing weighs like 16 ounces pound um, and then you can have your twenty-four or thirty-six by forty uh, softbox spider light, or your big octo bank, as they call them. That's like sixty inches wide. That is your key. I mean, this this little kit right here, bam! And then a little for fill, bring a little flex fill that you can whip out of your bag and punch another little LED into that uh, as a bounce for your fill. And Bob is your uncle. All right. Okay, so there you have it, Uh, J.J. Geller. I hope I have answered that one sufficiently. Next question. Hi, Shane. Can you give me some advanced tips on operating the camera handheld? I like the handheld style, but sometimes DPs use it in a way that it makes an audience sick. Your thoughts. Thanks. Okay. All right. Handheld. This uh, this is really cool because in within the inner circle, and this is stuff that you're going to be getting down the road. I'm just creating as much content uh, for all of you as I can, uh, and I'm creating this amazing kind of camera, emotion, and motion uh, m- movement. Uh, kind of expose and masterclass in from waist deep, this one film I did, which I just absolutely love the kind of the, the feel of the camera motion in this uh, film. So with that, um, we kind of go through this four scene sequence and I show you how the camera motion ebbs and flows and to different types of handheld, to different types of steady cam, to different types of long lens work, all different ways to be able to tell the story. And I find that filmmakers, a lot of times they get in this, okay, we're going to do handheld. Well, if you do a whole movie handheld, then obviously the audience is going to be dumbed down from the handheld in about 10 to 15 minutes. If it doesn't make them sick, the emotional impact of what that handheld is supposed to do is kind of lost. So what I like to do is I like to use handheld in a way that it was going to, once again, uh, take the emotion of our characters that much higher. And so, and you can use specific types of handheld to do that. There's obviously the handheld of it just being right on your shoulder. Now, I'm not a person that grabs grips. I don't like hand grips. For handheld i physically grab the mat box so and that handheld is a different type of handheld than grabbing handles so um i've always been the person that grabs the map box and uh, once you grab it for the first time, and obviously it can't be a clamp-on map box, it has to be like a, a studio map box that really clamps to the rods. Once you go there, you, you never go back because it is absolutely incredible on how you feel like you're one with the camera. Now, that aside, that type of handheld has a specific look. Now, your handheld, you want to glide on your feet. You don't want to physically run. Uh, you're, you're moving more where your uh, upper body doesn't, you know, jump up and down, but more your legs are becoming shock absorbers. You kind of try to be like a human steady cam arm to some extent, right? Then there's times where you want to just let it rip, and making an audience sick is what you want to do. So let's take Need for Speed for an example. Uh, Aaron Paul, uh, his best friend, Little Pete, flew off the cliff, burst into flames, and burned to death. Well, I wanted that handheld to feel like his whole world was sickening. And the so we did this camera called The Fist of Fury, where you... M- you hold the camera out in front of you. So your arm, not only, uh, it doesn't bounce or go move up and down, like it's on your shoulder. It kind of moves and rotates and left to right. So you get a, you get a whole other, uh, like you get the X, Y, and Z slight rotation with this and it swirls and it gives a whole unique style of energy. And for that moment, I wanted it to be, I wanted you to feel sickened. I I wanted you to feel like, oh, my God, this guy just lost his, you know, kid brother. So um, another example in Fathers and Daughters, when I hope you all go out and see it, April 5th when it's released. There's a scene in there where Amanda Seyfred basically self-destructs her relationship with Aaron Paul. And by doing that, uh I use the Fist of Fury to kind of escalate this situation. So, you know, getting back to the overall idea of handheld, I choose to uh be specific with handheld based on the camera and the character emotion of the story and don't do it too much. So the audience feels like they're dumbed down to it. And you want to kind, you want your peaks and valleys with camera motion as well is because that's what your characters are going through as well. They're going to be calm and then they're going to be crazed and then they're going to cry and then they're going to be happy. Well, your camera emotion has to be doing that as well. So if it's handheld all the time, then even when they're happy, they're, on edge is what you're kind of saying, but I would choose to go in and out of handheld. So I would do some scenes handheld where I need that camera motion. Then I would be static or locked off or movie or Cam or dolly. But again, peaks and valleys up and down Always keeping the audience guessing, always using what the character's emotion is to be able to drive your choice. So, um, you know, getting back to your question, uh, advanced tips on operating the camera handheld again, it's, it's, uh, kind of keeping the grabbing the matte box, is your first thing uh, if you want to go on the shoulder, having a very comfortable shoulder pad so you can keep it on there and comfortable. And, you know, anytime when you're not comfortable, you don't operate well uh, because you're thinking about the pain that's being inflicted on you. So make yourself as comfortable as possible. Um, there's going to be times when you're going to get into a close up, and if you've just run, a ton and then you're going to settle and you're going to get into a situation and that close-up I don't want to see you going (sighs) and the camera's like moving up and down and breathing I mean I've had times where I've run like that uh, and then I'll have to just like hold my breath and I'll just like breathe in and you know on a move or whatever and then just hold my breath so I don't get this you know up and down and up and down because on a longer lens, that's going to be very not good. So, you know, these are the kind of tips that, that I use a lot of times with longer lenses, handheld, you just got to really watch your breath. You got to watch your steps. Uh, Your body has to be like this very uh, straight, uh, you know, midsection uh, and then your legs are what kind of bends and, uh, becomes the shock absorbers. So when you move, you move very horizontally. You don't move up and down, up and down, up and down. You want to try to move as horizontal as possible. And I, I do that by with, you know, I, I'll hold it like I'm standing straight up and then I'll, you know, crouch down a little with my, and my stance so I can then move very horizontal without, uh, and you learn to run like <laughs> somebody very bizarre because runners would never run like that. But you run in this kind of horizontal, linear way that you're not bouncing up and down like most uh, joggers or, or uh, runners are going to do. You keep this very horizontal plane. So that's my advice on uh, using for handheld. All right, next question. Shane, what do you think about the older, boxy, rectangle Leco lights with removable blades, or as a newer source for, a must-to-purchase? Thanks. David St. George. All right, David. Well, I have to say a Lico is a Lico. Uh, it's like having a grip inside of your light. So whatever Lico you can get your hands on, if it's the one that's square boxy and has, you know, removable blades, then it's no problem. Go for that. Uh this is just a very powerful tool in your arsenal. I uh we're going to release uh, a whole video of where I light a whole uh, interview scenario with four Likos and their bounce, their edge, their, I mean, everything, I show you how every light can be deployed. And, uh, with a uh, specific use of how LECOs work at their absolute best. And um, so these are very, very good lights. And it doesn't really matter if you have the, the latest LED one or the latest halogen source four, as long as the light, uh, it looks good and gives a good color tone to it. And you're able to blade it, then uh, it's all good. But, I mean, the Source 4s, you can find those really cheap now. I mean, even used ones are in the $400 range. So, you know, not so bad to get a light that is that powerful. It has so much punch, and it can do 50 different things. Okay. All right. Next question. Hi, Shane. I've heard you talk about the different strokes of lighting, and I'm intrigued to know if you follow a set pattern to lighting your scenes in every circumstance. Do you always follow the same steps in the same order, or do you mix it up based on what the scene demands? What instruments uh, have you handy, or how much of a time crunch are you under? I'm interested to know how I might be more efficient on set and how I might be able to iron out a technique for getting more done with less of everything. Great question. Okay. Yes, there is a way that you go about lighting every specific scene. So let's take an example. Um, Right now we're releasing these big day interior lighting and night exterior lighting. Those two are completely different in what you start with. Um, So with, uh, lighting day interiors, lighting, uh, day exteriors, um, are different as well because, okay, let me get back to it. So say, say we're lighting a day interior, you, your first thing, or a night interior, you, your first thing you want to do is set your key light. Where is that key light coming from? Is it a window? Is it a doorway? Is it practicals within the house? Uh, or the environment, whatever it might be, that is your first stroke, is motivating that key light. Once you've done your key light, then you're looking at your backlight. Once you've set your backlight, then you're looking at your background light. So lighting the background in an interesting way, something that looks appealing, that has the right mood and tone. And then the last thing you do is your fill light. Okay, so that's kind of the order that I use for every night interior and day interior scenario. When you go into lighting day exteriors and night exteriors, what you're looking for is your first stroke is backlight. So if it's day exteriors, you're looking at the sun and how can you make sure everything is backlit as much as possible? And everyone says, what do you mean? I look one direction, it's backlit. I look the other direction, it's backlit. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, whatever looks good, looks good. Now there's going to be some times in your blocking where you're not gonna be able to do that, but I make it as a rule to try and shoot everything backlit uh, on day exteriors. And I just twist the action around or block it in a way that I can get as much backlit uh, backlighting on that scenario as possible. So in day exteriors, your backlight is your first stroke then it becomes your key light. Then it becomes whatever background you're filling in. Then the fill light is the last thing you add. With night exteriors, it's the same thing. Your backlight is the most important thing. That's your moon source. So you want to, your first stroke in night exteriors is your backlight. So you set that up and that educates everything everything that happens from this point on. So the backlight to come in and that's the first thing you, that's your first stroke. Then it's your, uh, then it's your moon ambience is what I call it, which is like a big bounce that's nice and soft that, uh, you know, comes from, I usually make it this comes from the same side as the backlight is coming from. And then I start to light the background and make that look really interesting and, uh, the correct mood and tone. So these are different ways that I organize myself. I, a lot of times the gaffer will not have the backlight up, but he's able to put the key light up. And I'm like, you know, until we see the first stroke, we're just waiting. Keep on working as much as I'll fiddle with the camera and be talking, you know, trying to finesse the move or work with the operators or something while he's getting the first stroke up. Because what ends up happening when you start turning on other lights and it's not your first stroke, you will start over lighting the shit out of your scene. And that's the one thing you don't want to do. And that's why I call it a stroke on your canvas, because like any good painter. He will do a stroke and that first stroke is going to be, uh, the thing that motivates everything where he starts from and then where it ends. So th- this is the same situation. You want to start with that first stroke. And if it's a day interior or night interior, then it's your key light and that key light, where is it coming from? First stroke. Okay. Now that's in the room. Okay. Now let's shape it. I'm not, I'm, I'm not moving on to the backlight or moving on to the fill light or moving on to the background. I'm not doing any of that stuff. I'm just working on my key light. Key, shape it, configure it. So it's not flying all over the place. Okay. Got that. It's working with the actors. It looks really nice. Okay. Now move on to the backlight. Sometimes you don't even need a backlight. Sometimes the background becomes your backlight, right? If there's a lot of cool stuff in the background happening, then they're going to separate from the background beautifully. So sometimes you don't even go with the backlight. But let's say now you have finessed your key, you've shaped it, you've done all that stuff. Now you go with your backlight and you finesse that and you get that. So it feels like it's real and it's inviting and it feels like it will happen in that space. It's not too overpowering. And then you start to light uh, your background, putting bokeh or whatever kind of interesting lighting and effects in the background. And then you end with your fill. And the night exterior, doing your backlight as your first stroke. When you do it this way and methodically this way, you will not use a lot of lights. And it also you know, gets down to the bare minimum of, you know, it's your actors, it's their emotion, and it's whatever is going to illuminate them and give them as much freedom as possible to move around and attach that emotion that those characters are trying to convey to the audience and make them feel. All right. Our last question is from Ahmed. Dear Shane, can you compare between the quality of light you get from Kinoflows and the book light? Yeah, this is uh, in the Facebook community. There was a big uh, book light that somebody had gone to a book light uh, lighting course. And the person that was using the book light had a very large source that he bounced into. And then he went into a smaller diffusion frame. Uh, and everyone was like, well, why is he going something bigger than the diffusion? And, uh, I kind of answered this question on the Facebook community and, and let's just go back to the painters, right? Um, uh, the original North light, uh, which is the north side of a home or north side of a building where no direct sunlight comes in. But the sun hits all the buildings, all the ground, all the sky. Everything comes from that north light that then filters into a window. Well, that's the same thing as a book light. You have a huge outdoors that you're funneling into a window. If you look at all the greatest painters uh, across the thousands of years, the use of of north light and the use of them painting with window light because they obviously didn't have lights right they had candles and and torches and oil lamps uh this is the way they lit so um this is what a uh, a book light is going to feel like if you use a very large source that then that then you're shaping and containing to then come into a room uh and that's kind of what a window north light window light scenario feels like. So I try to, anytime I do a book light, I try to emulate that by doing a very large source, whether it's a 12 by 12 or a 12 by 20, and I'll bounce 18 Ks or maxi brutes or whatever into that. And then I'll bring that through a 12 by six uh, window frame, uh, you know, or diffusion frame that then key is the individual. Now a Kino flow, because it is a very bright white source, the quality of light is going to be very different than from a Kino flow than a book light, because a book light, you're taking a very, hot source and you're bouncing it into a diff defu- and into a you know you're bouncing it off of a, a rag white or silver or whatever you're doing you're bouncing it off of that so now that becomes the source so you went from say you're taking a leco you went from a leco which is a four and a half inch five inch diameter of a light and you just made it into a four foot wide. So now your source is a four four foot wide uh, light, and then you're diffusing it again. And whether you want a, the same size diffusion, a four by four, or you want to shrink it down, or whatever the case may be, that quality of light is going to be far different than just taking a kino flow and popping it uh, through, you know, hard onto uh, an individual. Now, what I do with Kino Flows a lot is what is called a waterfall. I'll use the horizontal of a four foot four bank, and then I'll take the diffusion on the roll and I'll just put a waterfall. So you just take the diffusion, put it like eight feet in the air, and then you just pull it all the way down till it touches the floor. And that becomes a way that I diffuse Kino Flows. For some reason, they love that long uh, kind of belly of a waterfall of light, and it looks very good on faces. But, um, you know, a book light is going to be very, very different in its quality of light because it's going to be very super soft and wrappy. where the Kino flow is going to be much harsher. You're going to see the pinpoint of light in their eyes where with the book light, you're going to see a very big white source. So this is, uh, you know, as you get more experienced and as much as these videos, I'm trying to show all of you quality and quantity of light, because that is what separates you from the men to the boys is all about quality and quantity. Once you start to understand how to create all different qualities of light, you will start to become an incredible cinematographer. And that is really what it all comes down to. Uh, The composition and all that stuff, yes, is very important. But when you're looking from a lighting standpoint from it all, it's the quality of light, being able to look at light in the natural world and then being able to emulate that with Light sources that give that same look and feel and quality and quantity of light uh, that you just saw. So that's kind of the art of cinematography. And uh, that concludes our March 2016 podcast of lighting and cinematography. And I want to thank you all again for all of your support. And I also want to say, please keep the questions coming more questions that are asked. The more I can reach out and touch every single one of you. And uh, so keep that question bin filled on the inner circle. Please go to it right now. If there's something that I didn't answer or it's sparked uh, another question in your mind, take the time uh, invest in all of us, as I invest in all of you, the time to supply these questions so we can continue to inspire and educate. If you love what you're listening to here, go to shanesinnercircle.com. It is knowledge that is forged on the set. This is not a classroom environment. This is boots on the ground, immersive learning that you can apply immediately to whatever your skill level is. Knowledge you can trust, people that care. That's exactly what happens in our loving film community of shanesinnercircle.com. Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps. Most notably, the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for All Access members and from content to community and coaching opportunities. Everything you need to master your craft. So download the app, and this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level.